Hello and welcome back to episode 41 of Double Reel. This is the third part of our monthly magazine podcast for the discerning film nerd. Hopefully you've caught up with the first two parts which came out in the last couple of weeks. If not, please do go back to your app, download them and have a listen. Part one is Double Reel Monthly with news, reviews of new releases including Scrapper, The Equalizer 3 and They Cloned Tyrone, my monthly David Cronenberg film which is Maps to the Stars and James's look at a Nick Cage film picked at random. Part two is our regular features, including our classics and recommended feature Stalker, our hidden gem Take Shelter, our one that got away David Lynch's Ronnie Rocket, and a remake hate watch of I Am Legend. Now in our final part for this month, we give you the big conversation where we talk about a topic from the film world in more detail. First of all, a warm welcome to my co-host, James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. So, as advertised, this uh, big conversation is a spotlight on William Friedkin, who sadly passed uh, in the you know in, in the last sort of few weeks to a month. Um, a major film director of the late twentieth century, uh, and someone that we felt like you know discussing because his films and he, uh, as a film director, are very interesting bloke. Um, so, James, you, how many William Friedkin films would you say you've seen to your knowledge oh, do you want the exact number i can give you the exact number go on um, i've seen i'll go get his filmography because i didn't actually you've kind of curveballed me with that one because i didn't actually write the number down so i'm just going to quickly go to his filmography i've not seen any of his later stuff i have seen one two Three. Only three. I'm going to guess that's the French Connection, The Exorcist, and Sorcerer. Yeah, and I, I, I didn't watch all of Sorcerer. Um, I, I caught, like, it was on TV and I didn't catch the first 20 minutes, so I sort of had to piece together the rest of it, but it was still yeah. good. A lot of, funnily enough, the, the when Sorcerer came out, it it hit a lot of trouble with the, um, with the studios and with the system, because it came out at the same time as Star Wars, and everyone's going, oh, fuck this, William Friedkin and his auteurism we need more blockbusters and there was a there was a version release which which cut the first 20 minutes out all the exposition of who the people are because right. you know the first 20 minutes so is, I've, I've watched that version by yeah you, yeah you've watched the cut up <laughs> theatrical version of sorcerer because the first 20 minutes is like how roy shardy got there how uh the palestinian guy got there how the french guy got there kind of thing and 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 the mysterious kind of mafia hitman he turns up as well so if you miss the first 20 minutes, you just sort of go, oh, a bunch of random people in a, uh, living in shit in Central America, which is what the, uh, the a lot of average punters got as well. Um, so just double-checking, you've not seen To Live and Die in L.A.? No. Not seen Bug or Killer Joe? No. Um, he, I, I, I was actually surprised to find this out, so I'd be amazed if you have seen it. Did you know that he did a, a TV movie remake of 12 Angry Men? I just saw that on his filmography there, and I thought, surely that's not the same thing. Um, but it is yeah I mean the thing is 12 Angry Men was a stage play or was made into a stage play after the film was so successful I can't remember one way around but it's a, it's a film and a play basically and that means there's been loads of productions of it um, still slightly surprising that someone do a TV movie of that although apparently it was quite well received um, but yeah look he's most well known for especially French Connection and uh, and Sorcerer no sorry French Connection and The Exorcist um, yeah that is, you know, and, and Sorcerer is now reclaimed as like a classic film, but didn't do all that well at the time. Um, but William Friedkin was one of the biggest film directors of the, of the 70s and then wasn't one of the big film directors anymore. Um, that's, you know, just, but he was, you know, 
his two big film, big hits of that um, era totally shaped um, the 70s. I mean, they were massive hits. They won Oscars or were nominated for things. Um, you know, The Exorcist changed horror movies. The French Connection changed cop movies. Uh, and also a really interesting guy, very outspoken, um, came from an interesting background. Um, what do you know about William Friedkin outside his films? Like where his influences came from, what kind of film director he is, or what, what your thoughts, put it this way, what, what your thoughts about what kind of film director he is based on the films of his that you've seen? He's quite hard to pin down because I would say that the, from the films I've seen at least, Sorcerer and French Connection have some sort of similarities in you know, the sense that they're kind of gritty films about sort of like crime or criminals, if you get mm-hmm. what I mean. They're two, like two totally different scenarios. Like mm-hmm. French Connection is very urban mm-hmm. and kind of just city crime and gangs and that stuff. But then the Sorcerer is very much like kind of like cartel, kind of not cartel, but you know what I mean? Like across the jungles. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then The Exorcist, nothing like either of those two films. So, yeah, it's hard to pin it. I think he's a kind of an everyman director. He'll do, or he would do, sorry, the film that he just liked making, which I quite liked. Whereas you know how like, there's directors that just kind of do what they want because they like the idea of it like they never break out of a certain genre like they only ever do for example Christopher Nolan has kind of branched out from sci-fi to only do not from only doing sci-fi to doing sort of bio biopics and stuff like that yeah you like you like a director to try a few different things because you don't want them to be stuck in one genre and you don't want them to turn to that kind of director that only makes uh, you know, for example, you wouldn't say William Friedkin only makes William Friedkin films that you watch now and go, oh, look, there's the lens flare, there's him putting the camera. Do you know what I mean? He, he, um, he, ma- he, he kind of makes quite varied films. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say I like directors that, don't, like, that they have to branch out, if you get what I'm saying. I yeah. think if you're good at something and you're good at that genre, then, you know, keep doing, like, for example, Tom Cruise. I don't want to see Tom Cruise doing, you know, I don't want to start doing, like, Oscar bait films or start doing like horror films and stuff like that because you know if Tom Cruise is going to do a film it's going to be full of action there's going to be some crazy stunts and it's going to be enjoyable but I think it's nice to see if you get what I'm saying that someone can also do that yeah yeah I know what you mean um well let's we did get some socials messages uh about William Freakin which I'll just chuck in here because we're talking about what kind of director he is and this is kind of how people reacted on you know the announcement of his passing basically um uh, Monty says Friedkin was a truly fearless director with much greater range than most people might realise. He did some great work adapting stage plays to the screen, including the first ever adaptation of Harold Pinter's play, The Birthday Party. Uh, Mark says genuinely gutted by his passing, made some absolute classics, three or four of which are some of my favourite films ever. Always came across as a proper mad bastard who didn't give a fuck. Uh, and that's definitely true. Uh, Harry says he made some all-time classics uh, and some turkeys, uh, a great character in the film world. The films he made after his 70s peak, To Live and Die in L.A. and Killer Joe are my favourites. To Live and Die in L.A. arguably has a better car chase uh, in it than French Connection, which is a big claim that I tend to agree with. Um, We'll talk about To Live and Die in L.A. later. Uh, Dak says after his peak years, it seems like Hollywood just stopped making films the way he wanted to make them and he got a bit lost. But he had a terrific final flourish with his last couple of films. Um, That must be where I got that phrase, final flourish, from um, reading those messages. So, yeah... um, yeah, I mean, this is what people say about William Freakin. Massive in the 70s, 
really kind of great when he was at his best um, and uh, a really lively character. Uh, Mark Kermode obviously said a lot about him um, uh, on his passing on his podcast and in his like you know articles that he was writing because he was like you know The Exorcist is his favorite film of all time. He was you know he championed that film when it was like banned on video for you know for years. Uh, and you know did a lot of stuff with William Friedkin became friends with him and even though William Friedkin was friends with him there was one time when he did something or wrote an article where William Friedkin kind of didn't like what he'd done and, and William Friedkin was kind of very he's really plain speaking said I thought that was bullshit and he said oh wow I didn't really do you know what I mean he's really kind of you know just plain speaking you know you know someone say someone tells it like it is which means they're an arsehole this is a guy who tells it like it is. he's just really honest you know He'll tell you if he doesn't like something. Um, he'll tell you if he does. Totally, you know, just a really lively character. Um, but if I if I was going to try and see what the common denominators are of his three most famous films, which is those three which we discussed, it I would say it comes from the fact that he started out on TV. Now, some of that was doing TV episodes for Alfred Hitchcock Presents and stuff like that. But his, his most um, sort of notable work when he started out uh, you know, before he did his kind of, you know, adaptation to plays or any any of the other stuff that he did, um, he did a number of quite successful documentaries uh, on television, some of which got a theatrical release. In 1962, he did The People vs. Paul Crump, which is a TV documentary about a man sentenced to death for murder. And the the documentary and some of the, the issues that it raised led to that man's life, uh, death sentence being commuted to life imprisonment instead. Um, and the Thin Blue Line in 1960 was like a fly on the wall documentary about uh, the police, and and definitely you know that was five years before French Connection. But the way he followed the police around, you know, camera over the shoulder, watching them do what they do and the way they do it was definitely an influence. Um, and one of the big influences on him when he was uh, kind of you know starting his own career was a film called Z, which I've talked about in the past. It's Costa Gavras, who is a Greek director exiled to France when a military dictatorship took over Greece and he made a film about it's thinly veiled but clearly about like the military you know fascist dictatorship taken over for, uh, over Greece and it shot like a documentary and this massive sort of penny dropped for William Friedkin that he could shoot his films even though they're drama films and acted you got Gene Hackman and it's a script and we're going to do a set piece with a car chase you can shoot it documentary style to make it seem more real. And I would say even The Exorcist, right, which is such a different genre to those other two films, what he's trying to do is he's trying to make whatever is happening on screen as believable as possible. And that comes from his start in um, in documentaries. And I think that's a big part of, of how William Friedkin does things. So when he, when he stages a car chase or a shootout or a conversation between two people, you feel like you're really there, is is how I'd characterise him. I mean, do, do you, I mean, with me sort of, sort of you know, getting on my anorak and, and and unpicking that. Does that does that ring true for you now? Um, yeah, I certainly feel like that was like he drew inspiration from that um, when he was making his films, um, for like a sort of dramatic effect, like the the French Connection. That's that makes it feel a lot kind of more real and mm-hmm. kind of thrilling. And Exorcist. That's you know we all know that exorcisms have happened, so to kind of have that kind of angle when you look at it makes it seem more terrifying mm-hmm. um so I, yeah i understand why he would do that and i sort of see it i wouldn't say it's it's not as like blatantly obvious as like other kind of found footage or like yeah docu, docudrama kind of things you know yeah um it's more stylistically how he shoots yeah. rather than yeah yeah you're absolutely right it's not like it cuts to someone saying and then 
we found the body kind of stuff. You know, those kind of films where it's like yeah, yeah. they're trying to kid on that they're they're real life people and not actors. Yeah, exactly. I mean the I mean the French connection is based on a real case. Um so there is an element of the documentary style suits the material, but it's not like you say, it's not kidding on that you're watching the actual case you're kind of going, oh, right, this is based on true events, and I can genuinely believe that that's how it played out. And when you get those, um, you know, whenever, whenever you have, like, a fact-based or a based-on-a-true-story film, and they have some, like, subtitles or credits at the end saying, and after that, he was never seen again, those kind of things, you know, at the end of French Connection, you really do feel like, oh, yeah, that must be how it really happened, you know, even though he took some liberties. Um, so, yeah, definitely a guy who made it absolutely huge in the 70s. I mean, him and Coppola, you know, until Spielberg and, um, and and George Lucas came along, were the two people who were really winning the 70s, yeah? Um, but his early, prior to that, prior to the 70s, he had, he had no hits. He had a film called Good Times, which is kind of like his feature film debut. It's a, a collection of comedy sketches starring Sonny and Cher. I assume you've heard of Cher, but you've probably not heard of Sonny and Cher. I've heard the the duo Sonny and Cher, but... Yeah, they they did a song together, I Got You, Babe, which is in Grand Hook and all that. They had a TV show together, which was like comedy and songs. And this was like the, you know, the spin-off, the TV show into a movie. And it was just a collection of sketches. It was like William Freakin's like debut. Yeah, I'll take that job. Not not great, but you don't kind of say, oh, that, that, that shows, you know, William Freakin didn't have it down. It was just the job. It was just a job. He did that adaptation of the birthday party that our, our user Monty talked about, um, which was well received. It's interesting that he did a couple of filmed plays because he did another one called The Boys in the Band. And those are going to seem quite stagey, right? I mean, even you remember we watched One Night in Miami, mate. And I think we'd both agree that that was quite cinematic, actually, the way Regina King directed that. But still, it's very, very dialogue based, right? So it's kind of funny that William Freak would actually move into a much more. I wouldn't say he did kind of stagey films once he got past that phase of his career. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I agree. Um, so then he, then he hits big with, with, you know, with the 70s. After that, you know, Sorcerer was a failure because it was the end of that era of, of, of 70s kind of cinema and it was time for blockbusters, Jaws and Star Wars. He did a film called Cruising in 1980, which we'll talk about, which did well at the box office, was highly controversial, but it wasn't like, it didn't dominate like you know, French Connection did. Um, he had a very, very poor, you know, a mixed 80s. He did a, did a good film called To Live and Die in Ale, which we'll talk about. And and then in the 90s, he was almost like casting around looking for things. He did a film called The Guardian, which we'll talk about briefly. Jade was a flop. Um, he had a, a reasonably big film with Rules of Engagement in 2000, which was kind of like, it was kind of, you know, get 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 a veteran director to kind of create a star vehicle for Samuel L. Jackson and Tommy Lee Jones. But nothing, nothing like that until you had that kind of late period with Bug and Killer Joe, which was 2006 and 2011. Now he's just about, there's a, a film sort of looking back over the K-Mutiny trial, um, which is coming out now. He completed it before he died, but I, I'm, I haven't seen it. It's not been released yet. So we're kind of looking at a film career which ended in 2011 with a couple of films which were well, well received, but quite a long wilderness period, you know, apart from that. And I suppose in that way, he compares to people like Coppola and John Carpenter, who had a period where they're at their best and a period when they weren't. And that's all you could, that's all there is to it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so like I mentioned before, the pod, mate, I, 
my suggestion is we don't go all chronological because it will start strong and peter out. I, I don't want to do that. This is a great filmmaker and all of his films usually are interesting in some way. So we're kind of grouping them together. So I thought first off we'd just have a look at French Connection, partly because you've seen it, and partly because you did a couple of other th other films which similar genre which we can compare to and group them up. So French Connection, I mean, we did it for the pod. I think you liked it, didn't you? Yeah, I re I liked it. Um, you know that I don't really get on with films that are from like back in the day because I'm a bit of a millennial, but it didn't feel you know dated. It didn't feel cheesy. You know, it was obviously filmed in the seventies, but it didn't it didn't you know. It wasn't like kind of boring for a film in the seventies, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. But you know, everything the films, yeah, you, the films I'm used is so to now are very yeah. grand and big scale, and you know the films back then were limited with the budgets and technology at the time. But I did appreciate it for being a like an enjoyable. Enjoy was a bit of a weird word because it's but it's quite a gritty film. But it was yeah, it was a it was a good film. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because in a lot of ways, every film, every cop film made after French Connection was influenced by French Connection because it was such an influential film. I mean, it was it was fucking huge. I mean, it did. I, I think I might have this. Um, I might have this right, but the kind of money that um, French Connection made for nineteen seventy one money, it was like 75 million worldwide but if you actually um if you actually convert that into 2023 dollars that's something like 500 million it's a big fucking movie right and every every cop film after that went well we can't make cop films like we used to they're gonna look shit compared to the french connection that's how like influential it was yeah which is always going to lessen its impact for you and me because we've already seen all the films that were made afterwards that were influenced by this film before we see the og film you know yeah um but I think what you definitely get with with French Connection, which I thought was interesting, was do you know that it's on um, it's on Disney Plus actually, isn't it? Because I think it's a Fox film, and and basically when Disney bought Twentieth Century Fox, they got the whole back catalogue of films, and they were definitely showing it on Disney Plus for a bit. But did you know that they actually there's a version of it showing on Disney Plus that cuts out some of the language? Okay, because. Uh, uh, Popeye Doyle and uh, Sonny are uh, or Cloudy I think he's based on a character called Sonny um, Gene Hackman and Roy Shutter but basically they say racist stuff they're, they're, they're racist towards black characters certainly Popeye Doyle is Roy Shutter less so and there was an element of oh I wouldn't want you know, wouldn't want to be seen to be endorsing this this isn't good and and essentially what they've done is because Disney don't they don't want controversial content they want everything to go down nicely with a cup of tea um they've cut out something that actually made the film mo most valuable, which was, that's what cops were like back then. That's the whole fucking point, you know? Yeah. Which is, because you don't see films like that now. I mean, if you, I mean, you do see it in something like Detroit or something, but racism has to be the story. But back then you would say, these are the cops, and we're not actually going to fully endorse these cops and say these are heroes. These are just the people on the scene who are going to be investigating the crime. And we kind of want the drug dealing uh, you know, organised crime people who are causing misery to be caught. Of course we do, but let's not kid ourselves on that the the cops of 1970 uh, or the 60s when when these guys were were nice people. Yeah, and they weren't. And and the two cops that the um, the story is based on were advisors to the film, and William Friedkin portrayed them the way they were, and they were happy, or kind of 
it kind of didn't, didn't apologize for who they were and said, yeah, that's what we were like. And I don't, I, I can't imagine a film coming out now, which would be so warts and all about two cop characters and that the cop characters it's based on would happily allow that to be shown, um, knowing that it would portray them in kind of a slightly negative light. And that's something you don't get nowadays. You don't get that level of grit in a, in a, a big film nowadays. Yeah, it's all about saving face and your image now when mm. your story gets told on the screen or big screen. It's uh, Yeah, I mean, you would you would get a film like Detroit now, but that film is all about the racism, not all about a case being investigated where some of the cops happen to hold views that are not acceptable in this day and age. I mean, I suppose if they made it now, because it's not the 1970s, that, yeah, they probably would want it adjusted because of, you know, in today's day and age, that language and those attitudes are frowned mm-hmm. upon and... They were still bad back then, but the seventies the are different to the twenty twenties. Yeah, the thing is, I can, I can understand. I mean, I, I'm okay with them having warnings at the start of films nowadays. Saying, "Look, this film contains discriminatory language," because it, it, I, I can understand them going, "Look, some young black person just wanting to watch like a classic cop movie, being confronted with like Gene Hackman playing what might be seen nominally as the hero of a movie, saying that shit." I can understand them wanting to do something, but it's going to get to a point where everything gets kind of smoothed out and people could watch the films of the day and not realize how racist they were back then. And that would be really fucking bad, you know? Yeah. Um, but it is interesting that it was gritty, realistic, that car chase, you know, it's, it's, it's in fact, it's a car chase, but the car is chasing a train. Fuck me. They shot it without permits. They actually crashed into a bus. They didn't close the road. That's not a bus that they brought in for the movie. That's a bus that just happened to be like driving through New York that day. And they <laughs> crashed into it, you know, no, you know, no stone unturned to make like a compelling film, and it, it completely changed the world. Um, so, probably French, French Connection. When you read when you read the obituaries, I thought The Exorcist was going to get mentioned first. You know, William Friedkin, director of. I thought The Exorcist was going to be the first one to say, but actually, they almost all went William Friedkin, director of French Connection and The Exorcist. Maybe because French Connection was first. Maybe because they didn't want to be too obvious. But the French connection is kind of kind of his legacy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, now, he did a couple of other films which <clears throat> I would say are uh, similar in that genre. And I think they're, they're an interesting uh, illustration of how Friedkin's career went. So there's a film he did in 1985 called To Live and Die in L.A., uh, which you've not seen, have you? Uh, no, I haven't. So, funnily enough, this film was like um, more Miami Vice or more Michael Mann than Michael Mann in a way, uh, which is funny because it's very, it's it really, it really captures the eighties cop drama genre in the same way that he, he captured the seventies or even defined the seventies cop drama with French Connection. It's got music by Wang Chung, who are like an eighties uh, act at the time. It's uh, you can you can definitely tell that it's filmed when it was filmed, and it's got a lot of the similar kind of stylistics of of Michael Mann. Although Michael Mann was at that time using it for Miami Vice, and it's almost like Michael Mann wasn't the first person to put his kind of style on film. If you see what I mean, Michael Mann had made a couple of films, but nothing like he would eventually do with Heat and stuff like that. And, and To Live and Die in LA is this real full on. It's basically, if you're going to be really reductive, it's William Friedkin's French Connection updated for the 80s, basically. Right. Um, 
William Peterson, who you'll recognise from CSI maybe, um, or Manhunter, the first Hannibal Lecter film. He plays a Secret Service agent who is um, single-mindedly, you know, doesn't give a fuck. He goes after the, you know, the the, the person who um, killed his partner, basically, who is a currency um, uh, uh, what are they? Wow, my mind's gone blank. Making fake currency, what do they call that? Counterfeit, oh, counterfeit, counterfeit, counterfeit currency. Yeah. Because the Secret Service is this really weird remit in America. Their, their two jobs are protect the president and prevent counterfeiting of US dollars. <laughs> so weird. That that's Those two jobs just don't fit, right? But basically, this case, there's a brief bit at the beginning where he's doing kind of political protection, right? Um, but the rest of the, the film is him chasing after Willem Dafoe's you know, antagonist, the, the, the currency counterfeiter. And along the way, you see that he does not give like one fuck. He doesn't play, you know... It's kind of it's kind of a cliche now. The Maverick Copper doesn't play by the rules, but this is like this is like another level. He's he's found a woman who is on parole, and he uses her as a confidential informant and threatens her that he'll send her back to jail and she'll lose her kid if she doesn't tell her tell him exactly what he wants. And he's in a relationship with her, and that relationship feels very very inappropriate. You know that he's got you know it's a very unequal power relationship that he has over her, and he's got he's just got this terrible hold over this woman. So he's not a nice guy. When they take it well beyond the Popeye door stuff, this this guy is, you know, he's tolerated because he's kind of chasing the bad guys, but he's really not a good guy, you know. Um, and he's 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 corrupt in the sense that he's, um, is he corrupt? He's he's basically paying money out to kind of you know people for um uh for tips, and he doesn't give a shit who you know about most crimes. He steals money so that he can use it to kind of. Uh, entrap a suspect so corrupt is maybe a strong word it's not like he's on the take from gangsters and not kind of going after the bad guy because he's going after the bad guy with everything he has but he's breaking every rule in the book to do it kind of thing yeah uh and it's it's violent it's fast-paced um it's got these central characters who will just stop at nothing willem defoe's a fascinating villain it's all very 80s we're going to do it for the pod in more detail i think it's it, it, it would go down as a hidden gem it's really really good um, it's got a car chase where he um, they rob a diamond smuggler so they can use that money because they can never get enough money off the the, the 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 secret service will never sign off enough cash for them to kind of uh, do a proper undercover operation that would interest this big counterfeiter so they're always getting like the minnows they're never getting the big fish so he decides he's going to rob a diamond counterfeiter. Uh, for like 50 to 100 grand because that's enough money to kind of um, uh, then approach the counterfeit he's trying to catch with an undercover operation um, but in order to do that he's got to um, rob the guy at gunpoint you know run his car off the road this guy happens to have armed guards like following him there's a shootout the guy they're robbing gets killed and then there's a massive car chase between him and the armed guards that are chasing after him they go the wrong way up the motorway 70 80 miles an hour with cars coming the other direction you would chewing your fingers off during that car chase and I, I would actually say it's a better car chase than the French Connection it's a fucking belting film huh. um, now in, interesting enough you know the, the French Connection's kind of got some downbeat aspects to it the killer gets away some of the investigating officers I'm sorry for the spoilers but that film's over 50 years old they, they kind of they kind of break up the operation but the main guy gets away and uh, some people get shot you know there's some friendly fire incidents in the big shootout at the end so it's it's quite a classic 70s kind of downbeat style. I mean, 
the eighties isn't really your era, but w- w- was it your expectation that you know you, you got downbeat endings in cop films and action dramas in the in the eighties, or do you think that kind of stopped in the seventies? What's your perception of that? Um, I think my expectation of cop films in general is that they always get the bad guy and they have that moment with the sunglasses on and the the sun setting. And they think, yeah, we got them. That's the kind of impression I get from any cop movie. Mm-hmm. So I think I've got that expectation, you know, regardless of whether the film came out in the seventies or the eighties, but. I think it's 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 better to not we're not better. It's now and again it's good to have an ending where you know this is a really dark story about some really you know bad people with some arsehole um, protagonists, and for them to go maybe they don't get you know the the happy ending at the end or the you know they don't get the victory that they necessarily thought they were getting. Yeah. So without spoiling the plot, the the ending has it's a mixed ending there are some wins and some losses and you know the 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 main character is not at all likable so you know stuff they get into kind of leads you know in all sorts of directions and it's i i think what what william freaking did with that is he he showed that he could still do great cop films and it's not the same as french action it's a different story different style different central character um you know different you know different setting you know it's not just you know it's it's not drugs it's counterfeiting but he he includes in it very very similar elements to what you put in the french connection and if he'd done that in 1975 instead of 1985 i reckon he would have had a similar massive hit on his hands and what he got instead with to live and die in la in the 80s was a modest hit he didn't get the same kind of money that he got for french connection and even the french connection didn't have huge huge sums of money um, but it was a massive hit, and with this, I think it like he made it cost six million to make, and it made twenty, which makes its money back. But it's barely troubling like the top twenty or thirty domestic that year. Um, I knew about it because it was like in all the video shops. It didn't get. I wouldn't have been allowed to go and see it at the cinema when it came out in nineteen eighty five anyway, because it was like full on eighteen. But it wasn't like a, the big kind of box office hit of the year, and I think that shows. The comparison of those two films shows that William Friedkin at that point hadn't declined, but Hollywood had shifted and he hadn't shifted with it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, what, what do you think that does psychologically to a director when they just feel like the ground's moved from under them and you know they've got to make a choice between, I'll make the film I want to make, but it might, it's not going to have the same impact on the world culture that, that it used to, or maybe I should move the times and try and make films more like you know, people want. I mean, would, you, would would it be understandable for you if a director did change with the times and maybe do make what he felt or he or she felt were compromises? Um, I think it's good to stick to your guns, but at the end of the day, it is quite a hard battle when, you know, you're fighting against a studio who is, you know, giving you that budget for the film. Um, but it must be frustrating because you want to make the film that you want to make. But I appreciate a director that just wants to stick to the guns and tell the story that they want to uh, want to make. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a hard one that one. Yeah, because a lot of a lot of the same things he tried a lot of the same things in this film. Because when he did the French Connection, I mean, William Friedkin wasn't a huge name director in 1971, and uh, it was a gritty cop drama that wasn't you know it wasn't a romantic comedy starring Ryan O'Neill and Barbara Streisand, right? So he didn't get a huge budget. He got a decent budget, okay? I think he got almost an identical sum of money in 1971 for French Connection that he, that he got for To Live and Die in, live and die in LA in 85. So a bit a, comparatively in inflationary terms, a bigger budget in 71 than he got for, you know, later. 
but still not huge. And he couldn't afford any stars. He couldn't get Paul Newman and, you know, uh, Steve McQueen, right? So he went for terrific actors who no one had heard of yet who would do a great job. And in 1971, putting Gene Hackman and Roy Scheider as the stars of your film was fine. They became stars. Elliot Gould became a star in the 70s. You know what I mean? Those kind of people who don't necessarily look like movie stars became movie stars in the 70s. And he tried the same thing in um, in the 80s. And he had uh, William Peterson, Willem Dafoe, and a guy called John, I think Pankovich his name is, or John Pankow, who, who just went off to TV. It didn't repeat the trick. But, you know, in, in the 80s, you really did need a star. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and it's like the same movie with uh, you know Mel Gibson doing something gritty and another another you know big name actor kind of driving it. Yeah, he'd probably make another twenty thirty million dollars on that movie. He couldn't he couldn't he he couldn't control the outcome in the eighties the way he could in the seventies. Um, but he still made a fucking great film. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting though that you you kind of break it down like that how different it was back then to, and challenging I guess because you know it seems these days and credit to you know I know we slag off you know film companies all the time and the, the big ones anyway but you know it feels like a new film can come out and a star gets just catapulted to stardom mm-hmm. whereas making a film back then it's like yeah I need I need a lead lead actor who's going to make me the money on this film to get the buzz or get the budget that I mm-hmm. need to make this film so yeah it's challenging yeah um, and, and, and it is funny that, you know, he, it, it's, it's very interesting to compare it to like 1986's Manhunter, which came out the following year and also wasn't a big financial success, but Michael Mann kind of uh, sort of took it in a much more stylistic direction and, and, and sort of adopted the eighties. It's, but it's really interesting to watch, um, to live in Dale like Dine LA with William Freakin, who was like one of the 70s directors. And he does a film which on the face of it looks very much like an 80s film, but under the bonnet, it's it's got a 70s heart, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Uh, so, but definitely worth watching. Big I, 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 know, I know when I hype a film up for you, that can kind of be problematic. So forget everything I just said when we actually go to do it as a hidden gem, because what I'll also say is it's very dated, very 80s, not your era temper your expectations when you watch it but I think you'll find it I think it will work for you in a similar way that French Connection worked and it's, it's the film that's not your era but it's well made and you will find it interesting let me say that uh, but anyone my age if you haven't seen To Live and Die Now you fucking missed out it was one of those films that when you went into the old independent video shops pre-blockbuster the people certainly the one near me the people who ran the video shop were like big film fans and they would write on little cards next to the movies that they really loved and say, this is brilliant, you must watch this. This is the best car chase ever. I remember they had one for To Live and Die in LA. They had one for Day of the Dead. They had one for like, you know, Salvador with uh, with, with with James Woods. And they would be like, oh, wow, that that's a film you should watch. Um, so that's what that is. But his career trajectory is, is he's leveling off at this point because he's not having hits anymore. Yeah. The other film he did in this genre which I wanted to talk about is a film called Rampage, which I bet you've never even heard of. No. And no one even heard of it at the time, because it's really weird, because he made it in 1987, but the film company he made it for went bust, uh, and it disappeared and didn't come out until 1992. So imagine a film made in 1987 with 1987 cars and hairstyles that just gets kind of squeaks out quietly in 1992, like without fanfare, and people are watching that going, what the fuck is he doing with that mullet? Do you know what I mean? Um, and it concerns uh, the central character as a district attorney rather than a cop. It's played by Michael Bean, 
from you know Terminator and Aliens and 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 those films, yeah. Yeah. Now he hadn't really had a starring role because although he's probably got more screen time than Arnie in Terminator, Arnie's the star of the Terminator, or Linda Hamilton is. So he's always been like a supporting actor in terrific films. Aliens again, he's terrific, not the star. Scorny Weaver's the star, you know. And this was a film where he has an opportunity to to actually take the lead in a film where he's he's been driven on, and he's it's an interesting dilemma that's presented that he's like a he's a, he's a he's a prosecuting lawyer, but he's not full on you know conservative. You know, he wants to catch the bad guys, but he doesn't believe in the death penalty, even though the death penalty exists in in California at that time. Um, but the the case that he's going is so brutal and so horrible. It's a serial killer that's being investigated that it tests his um, uh, his dedication to his principles because it's like this is actually a case that might actually make even the most kind of liberal of people think, yeah, fry this cunt, you know. And it's a bit of a weird hybrid because it's part it's partly a serial killer film because you actually see the serial killer stalking his victims and uh, uh, you know killing them. And it's William Friedkin and he doesn't pull his punches, right? And it's partly a police procedural because, oddly enough, I didn't know that this was how it worked. Like, uh, Michael Bean sort of rides along with the investigating officers. It's almost like running around investigating the, 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 the case with the cops. And I thought he waited for the cops to catch a guy and build the case. I don't know how true that is. This is this is the 80s. They didn't give a shit about procedure when they made films, right? Look at Lethal Weapon or Highlander. Um, huh. But... And then the, the 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 other third of the film is actually the courtroom drama where the district attorney, uh, district attorney uh, Michael Bean is prosecuting the case and and you know arguing and you you have jury room scenes where the jury's talking about what they think of the killer and everything. It's like I'm not sure this film knows what it wants to be, you know. Yeah, and, I've not seen it, but from what you've told me, it sounds like you kind of got fucked over with that one, whether it was intentional or just you know hard luck you see it, it he's kind of it's kind of lucky i think although it meant that the, the the disappearance of that film meant that it went five years before he brought out another film i think personally he's kind of lucky that it squeaked out in 1992 because it just came out and everyone went, oh yeah what whatever because it feels like he should either have like focused on the district attorney's uh you know Make a courtroom drama where the district attorney's deciding, you know, it's got to, you know, work, you know, has the ethical like dilemma. Do that. That's fine. I'd, I'd watch that. I'd watch William Freakin follow that story, or, or, or do a serial killer drama. Really go for it. Serial killer, uh, you know, follow the serial killers, or, or do the police procedural. But he's, he's almost like trying to do too much in one film, you know. And and I, do you know, this is my pet theory. But I think one of the users kind of, uh, you know, one of the listener messages kind of uh, said something similar. And it, it does, I think it is a trend in some of his later films. It feels to me like he was chasing that success he had in the 70s. Because in the 70s, what you could do is you could be William Freakin or you could be Coppola or you could be Scorsese. And you could, um, uh, you could make a film that was your personal kind of movie that did things your way, that introduced... You know, you've watched the French New Wave, and you love Jean Luc Godard, and you're going to do a, a, a an American film with that sensibility, but it'll be a, a mainstream film. It'll be a top ten hit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And he could do something that was so striking, like the The Exorcist or or the French Connection or Sorcerer. And even though Sorcerer didn't do well at the box office at the time, it was still a big movie. And now he's trying to do things his way, and people are going, "Nope, that's not what people. That's not what makes the top ten anymore." You know. 
And I felt like he was chasing that magical feeling that he had before where he says, I can make my movie, I can shock people, I can make a movie that's talked about, I can make a movie that's got my themes in it, and I can almost like force the box office to kind of go my way. And and, and the short answer is he couldn't. And in kind of chasing that, I think he compromised his own film. And it's actually, I mean, this film has its defenders, right? But uh, I actually think it's one of his weakest films. And there's a there's a car chase in it, which isn't really very good. There's police procedural scenes, scenes where they're chasing co- uh, the killer on foot, which I just think if he shot that for the French Connection, he would burn the footage and say, we're not putting that in. Um, and there's a scene, uh, spoil it, but there's a scene where the killer, who's a serial killer, by the way, bursts through like smashes through a window and it's like a it's a it's a shock moment where there's a someone inside a building a priest inside a building it's like fucking old William if you're going to do another film featuring a priest just remember you did the exorcist and people are going to be comparing it do you know what I mean yeah and the serial killer like smashes through the window and it's meant to be a shock and it's not very good and one year prior to that Michael Mann did Manhunter where there's an identical scene where a serial killer smashes through a window and it's shit scary right and in this one, it's like, oh, it's not very good. And it's it's really that almost all of his other films have got something to commend them. And this one's like, he just fell off the map with this one. And I think it's because he was chasing something that he couldn't get anymore. Yeah. But but out, out of the cop-based or sort of crime drama, like those types of films, he did two absolute classics. One that everyone knows about and one that people should discover. So in that area, I think he's done quite well with his, with his like career. The next group I wanted to discuss, and we're, we're in sort of territory again, the film you've heard of, uh, is, is there's, there's two films here. One's The Exorcist, which is obviously his you know famous landmark horror film about demonic possession. But he also did another kind of supernatural horror type film called The Guardian, which came out in 1990. Now, I bet you've not seen The Guardian. No. Or even heard of it. No. <laughs> it's it's not about super, supernatural horror at a left-leaning newspaper. Let, let, let me be clear about that. Um, but... What's your experience with The Exorcist? First time you saw it, how you saw it, the effect it had on you? Um, yeah, it's. I found it, yeah, quite terrifying. For I know that I'm not a big horror guy, and you know, it's not a film that or a type of film that I would necessarily go for, but it it is scary. It's scary for a film that came out so long ago as well. Like, what is it? It's fifty years old now. And when I think of horror, I just think of those absurd, non-conjuring, insidious, Annabelle, those kind of films that are paranormal activity where they're, they're shit, but they are scary. They they do make you shit your pants with jump scares and creepiness. I'm, I don't get on with horror. But what was scary about The Exorcist, and I think this kind of ties back to your point earlier about making it a kind of docu documentary style kind of thing, is that it just felt so real. And I think knowing that you know the, the Catholic Church have tried exorcisms in the past... It, it did creep me out quite a lot. I, I, I don't like horror at the best times. It's, it, it is a great film, but it did its job in, you know, scaring mm. the fucking shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, I think it's um, it's funny because it doesn't have many moments of, like, a- Alien is scary partly because of the nature of that creature. It's just such a terrifying idea, but it's lurking around the corner and a character that you're watching on screen could get grabbed and eaten any minute. 
The Exorcist yeah. is a different kind of fear in that you're watching this woman like, what the fuck is going to happen to my daughter? That evil presence is all all over her home and she's got to live in it. Do you know what I mean? It's just this kind of pervasive... And it's really intense as well, isn't it? The intensity yeah. of The Exorcist is really much... And yeah, you're right. It's not dated at all because they put so much effort into you know, the makeup effects. I mean, when she is hovering above the bed or the bed like lifts up, you know, you know, I, I rewatched it, you know, re, you know, just the other day for this recording. I just went, yeah, that looks like a bed lifting up. Do you know what I mean? That looks like mm. she is floating in the air. Um, and back then you had to make those things look real, but you, you can't see any wires, you know, it doesn't look, you know, sometimes you see these things and you go, oh, well, you can see that like she's a different color to kind of the background of obviously kind of superimposed something and it doesn't look very good, but you forgive the fact that it's an older film. This is like, no, mm-hmm. that, that looks complete, you know. In in fact, if they did if they did that now and did it with CGI, it would look shit compared to how William Friedkin did it. Um, how old were you when you saw The Exorcist for the first time? Um, I'd I'd left school, so I'd say at least eighteen. Yeah, so maybe nineteen or something like that. Yeah, because the the history of The Exorcist was that it um, massive hit in nineteen seventy three, and back then you watched films on uh, on film. And then maybe you got to see it on TV. And I'm not sure if it was ever shown on TV in, you know, in like, say, the 70s in the UK or whatever. But by the time I'm, you know, going to the cinema, I can't go and see The Exorcist because it's been and gone. And in the 80s, there was a lot of, you know, watching films at an inappropriately young age in the 80s. I watched Jules when I was seven. I watched Alien when I was 11. And both times my mum put the film on for me. God God knows what she was thinking. Um <laughs> But The Exorcist, you just couldn't see because it was actually banned on video in this country. They wouldn't allow it on video. I do recall something like that happening. I thought you were going to bring it up. I wasn't sure if I was mixing it up with a different film, but I do. It it happened to a bunch of films. Uh, the Clockwork Orange was never banned. Stanley Kubrick just withdrew it and said he didn't want it to be shown again in his lifetime because he got death threats and there were, you know, copycat like gangs going around and he just didn't like the kind of fuss that it caused. Um, but other films were banned and it, there was this whole moral war apparent about video nasties because there seemed to be like this endless proliferation of horror movies on video and there was just this fear that The Exorcist you know, if you remember there was that whole thing with like the Jamie Bulger's Killers, they found some horror movies in their um, uh, it, you know, in the in the in the you know next to the VCR of, of one of the kids and it's like, oh yeah, they killed someone because of horror movies, it's like, really? Um, but there was this massive horror, you know moral panic about horror movies at the time and when I went first went to see The Exorcist it's the early 90s I'm, I'm, I'm at university in London and the only way you can watch The Exorcist is as a late show down at the Prince Charles Cinema in uh, in London and they yeah. show it they show it at midnight so it's a midnight show on a Saturday night in the centre of London it's literally the only place you can watch The Exorcist um, so I had to get the night bus home through London at 2 in the morning after watching the film so uh, I always used to joke, you know, The Exorcist is a scary film, but it wasn't as scary as The Night Bus Home that night. Um, but yeah, it still retains its power to shock. Um, it's weird because I've read the book as well, and I think William Freakin downplays this, but uh, the book does feel a little bit like propaganda for the Catholic Church. Because it it doesn't bother me in the movie, because basically it's like, you know, like, all right, these days when they do hold an exorcism it's like at the start of the film the doctor says get get a priest to carry out the exorcism it's almost like it's a psychological ploy it you know if the person believes they're possessed they'll believe they're not possessed if you if you get an exorcism you know 
And it's like, that bit, I probably believe about real life events. But in the movie, no, 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 she's fucking possessed. That's the devil, you know? The devil's inside her. The devil knows, you know, Father Karras' mother. This is real shit, you know? And it's incredibly, incredibly powerful, right? Um, the, the the money that, like, the excess made was, was incredible. It, it, it adjusted for inflation, it made $1.3 billion dollars. Uh, wow. it, it got it got re-released in 2001 and you know how when they re-release films they play it for like a week they like re-release Training Day the other day and I missed it because it was only on for like three nights in London and I couldn't get down to see it I quite fancy going to see Training Day so but the ex you know and, and films will make a few million every now and again they re-release Blade Runner and you can go and see Blade Runner again and it's great to see on the big screen and it, it, it adds little bits and bobs to the total like historic box office of a movie when they re-released the exorcist in 2001 to kind of commemorate that you can now buy it on video and everything finally it made 112 million dollars worldwide equivalent to 200 million dollars today i i've not heard of another re-release that's as big as that i mean that film is fucking massive um and again like like, like you say that's why i called it out he's he's gone to a lot of trouble to make that film seem real do you, when you watch that film, or I can't remember, I'm not sure how long it is since you've seen it, but do you, do you remember how long it is before you get any actual exorcism, before you get any priests like waving crucifixes at the demon? It did feel like a bit, didn't it? Well, for me anyway, is it? Yeah, it's a long the time. Exact, what's the, is it like an hour and 15 or something like something that? Something like that, hour and 15, hour and 20, before you actually have Lancaster Merrin and Father Karras go in in the, in the robes and start doing their shit. Um, but the build-up to that, it's really kind of, it's... You get some exposition. This is, you know, this is Ellen Burstyn. This is her daughter Regan. This is what's going on with her family. This is what's going on with her, you know, her, her dad, who's, you know, not mum and dad aren't together anymore. This is where she's working, you know, all of that stuff. And then it sort of she starts to talk about like her invisible friend and the Ouija board, and because you because you know it's the Exorcist, and it's got this reputation. Thinking, well, oh, that doesn't sound good. Do you know what I mean? That's sinister. And then. There's a, a tiny little scene, I don't know if you remember it, where she's up in the in the attic, she's looking around, and the candle that she's holding suddenly flares up and make and like makes her think that there's a it's gonna start a fire in her attic. But at that exact moment there's a knock and like someone actually comes up the attic uh, ladder and says, Can I speak to you for a minute? And she forgets for a second that, that something made her a candle flare up. The first hour of the film is all that building up of like unsettling detail. I'd be amazed if someone would make a two-hour horror movie now where you don't get any full-on demonic stuff for at least, like, 50 minutes. It's really... He really kind of builds the atmosphere and makes the audience wait. But he was just... I guess he had the confidence after um, French Connection to just go, uh, you know, I own this. You know, I am going to... You know, I'm going to... I'm in control and I'm going to make this happen the the way it needs to happen. And he really plays it out beautifully. Um, so... I'm I'm going to read the the synopsis of the Guardian, which is the other supernatural horror film that he did, and I, I want I'd just like your sort of just reaction as to what you think of a film like that being made by the guy who did The Exorcist and why he would choose to make this movie. You ready? Yep. The Guardian is made in 1990. Not got any actors in it that you've, you've probably heard of. Jenny Seagrove plays like the the main the main thing. A young couple with a newborn baby don't realise that the new nanny they've hired is a magical nymph who sacrifices infants to an evil tree. <laughs> right. 
It's not quite the exorcist, and, and, is and, it? And it's not that she believes that's what she's doing. In the movie, you see the tree. The tree is magic and has powers, and is is they have to do something about the evil tree. Okay. I just I just can't imagine someone saying, "I'm the director of The Exorcist. I'm not putting my name to that shit." I can't I can't imagine William Freaking going, "Yeah, I'll do that." Yeah, it's not the same vibe, is it? Yeah. No, I mean, I, trees aren't very scary, are they? Yeah, it's years and years and years since I've seen this film. My memory of it is 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 very faint. Um, and the only way to watch it now is to buy it. I'm not fucking buying it. Um, <laughs> but it's this classic thing, right? Is that it's based on a book in which the you know you can do all sorts of things in books, and it's you don't necessarily have to take it all literally. It can be a satire, it can be a ma- an allegory for something. But you minute put it put it on screen, it all becomes a lot more literal, right? And it wasn't a magic tree; it was it was like the 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 the, the nanny is like a devil worshiper or something, and she's wants the soul of the baby, or she's like a vampire or something like that who feeds off. That's it. In the original book, it is she's like an emotional vampire. You know, in um, what we do in the shadows, that comedy show. One of the yes. vampires feeds off emotional energy rather than blood. She's like that. And what happens is the nanny takes over the breastfeeding of the child because that makes her powerful, gives her, make, keeps her young and all that sort of thing. And it becomes a contest between the parents and the nanny over who's who gets the baby's love. And the whole thing's meant to be a little bit of like a satire on modern parenthood and blah, blah, blah. When they got William Freakin to do the film, the original idea was that it would be a... You know, it, the, the, and it was a bit of a thing back then. You had Fatal Attraction, you had The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, you had gen, you had single white female, you had some uh, sort of gender reversed ones like Pacific Heights and and, and stuff like that, where a, a stalker or, or a crazy person comes into your life and takes it over, basically, right? Yeah. And the idea was that this nanny is a psychopath and she's going to upend the family. Maybe she's going to seduce the father. Maybe she's going to steal the baby. And it was going to be a psychological horror about crazy people doing crazy things, right? And somewhere in the production process, they went, well, hey, we've got William Freakin here. Let's make this all supernatural. The studio said, oh, I want William Freakin. I want by the director of The Exorcist and I want a new supernatural horror movie. So they had he had his arm twisted to do this. And again, he's chasing the hits. He hasn't made a film for five years, or he has, but the one, the one he made disappeared and didn't get released. He's still chasing the success. The William Freakin, who's at, the, at his height, all the way through to 1980. We're going to talk about Cruising later, which is made in 1980. At that point, he's like, fuck you, I'll make my movie. 1990, he's like, I need a hit. So I'll do what the studio wants. And he did this yeah. absolute pile of shit. Oh, and, yeah. see, and this is like, and I'll talk about Rampage being his weakest film. This is no doubt his worst film. And the fact is, he can't make a he can't make a film unscary, but if a film this silly is not going to work, and it doesn't work, it's just... And it's really, really weird to, to just do that. It's like um, if you ask someone in 1974 um, that, you know, this guy will make a film that silly in future, you, no one would have believed you. William Freakin, French Connection, Exorcist, doing that? Never. And I think it's, and it's like, I don't want to criticise William Freakin because, you know, what, 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 what they should have done was they should have given William Freakin an amount of money and said, William, make whatever fucking movie you want. You're, you're Billy Freakin, you, you can do what you like. And they didn't do that. They twisted his arm. And it's always someone twisting the director's arm. I mean, every Ridley Scott film that's really not very good usually involves some arm twisting by the studio somewhere. There's a few exceptions. But Kingdom of Heaven, you know, when you see the film that Ridley Scott wanted to make, fucking great movie. You see the film that, like, happened because he got his arm twisted 
doesn't work or not not as well. Same with Prometheus. As, and this is what happened to William Freak because he hadn't had a hit in like 15 years. Well, he'd had a modest hit, but he hadn't had a big hit in 15 years. And this is what happens to directors who are still chasing that commercial success, you know? Yeah. And... Um, it, it 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 is a shame. I, th- I think I think what it's an illustration of is that if you're the seventies was like this unique period for filmmaking. It was very very hard to recreate, and this is an example of what goes wrong. You know. Um, but I I don't imagine that summary of the Guardian makes you want to go out and watch it. No, not at all. No. <laughs> it's funny. It was it was very much a thing at the time. The idea is. It's such a misogynist time as well. I mean, you watch Fatal Attraction now and you just think that whole thing about, you know, Fatal Attraction being stalked and, uh, you know, uh, you know, boiling your rabbit and everything else. It's like if you watched Hollywood films about um, about this sort of thing, you would think that 90% of cases were women like terrifying men, not the other way around. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So this is the thing they had to hand the rocks to Cradle, where Rebecca de Mornay was a, uh, a deranged kind of nanny who, who takes over the lives. It was very, very in vogue, and it just this was just a, a failed attempt to kind of ride that wave a little bit. The next grouping of films, it's another interesting one. Um, and I think, based on my recollection of Sorcerer, when we talked about it, it's going to be interesting to see what what you, uh, wh- wh- where you are with with Sorcerer now, having you know having sort of take you know let the film kind of settle in your mind a little bit. But the films do now Sorcerer and The Hunted, and we'll talk we'll talk about The Hunted and what that is in a minute. But what's your recollection of Sorcerer, having watched it for the podcast? What were your thoughts on it? I remember you preferred the original because um, you watched the original first and then the remake and you preferred the original. I watched it the other way around. I watched Sorcerer first and then The Way to Fear and I prefer Sorcerer. But I, I wonder how Sorcerer sits in your memory now with, with, the, with the time passing. Um, Yeah, and it's another one. Like the French Connection, it surprised me because of its time I didn't expect much or I didn't expect to enjoy it as much as I did. But yeah, it's another kind of gritty kind of... I don't know if exciting is the right word because it's about some really nasty, horrible people, but... No, it's. Uh, I enjoyed it. It was a good film. Yeah, it's another film where he manages to portray intensity on screen because you have got those crates of nitroglycerine, which are we know that they're kind of old and dodgy, and we know that the only reason those guys are driving them across the jungle and not like proper specialist drivers from the oil company is that they want someone expendable. And we know because they're sending two trucks that they don't mind if one of those trucks blows up and the people in it die. And then you see them going around a corner incredibly slowly, like inch by inch by inch. And then they cut to like the the box of nitroglycerine kind of jiggling. And you just think, shit, that's going to blow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. One one more one more bump and that's going to blow. And you see Roy Scheider is like one of the best people in the world at like shitting yourself acting. Do you know what I mean? You just, you know, you see it in Jaws. One, just, just look in his face. You know this is a scary situation, you know? And... It's a really, really intense, powerful film. Now, for those who've not watched that, listened to that episode of the podcast where we did Sorcerer, um, I recommend it. But um, it's 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 actually my favourite William Friedkin film. Uh, I absolutely love it. I was lucky enough to go and see like a reissue of it again at the Prince Charles a few years ago, um, and it's even more powerful on the big screen. Uh, it's a really, really intense film. Uh, and and what it is is that it's set in the seventies three essentially criminals 
who find themselves, uh, for criminals and such, who find themselves living in you know limbo under false names in in Central America in the late seventies, working like get, getting a day's work here and there, living in a shack, uh, get an opportunity because the local oil field, which is controversial and hated by the locals, is sabotaged. There's a massive fire. They got to put out the fire. The only way to put out the fire is with nitroglycerin. The only available nitroglycerin has to be driven slowly in trucks over the mountains, like 200 kilometers through the worst jungle in, or the toughest jungle in the world uh, to where the site of the fire. And they hire these these four guys because they're expendable. doesn't matter if they die. And they're not necessarily likable characters. One of them's a Palestinian terrorist and you see him blow people up at the start of the film. So I don't like this guy. Do you know what I mean? But then I, then I watch, I sit with this guy in a truck for like two hours watching him and you, you, you can't help but feel someone as a human being, you know? Yeah. And it's powerful and intense and goes directions that you wouldn't see it in. Failed at the time. It was held up as an example of, oh, these um, these Hollywood auteurs, these these 70s auteurs have, have gone too far. Let's let's pull it back. Let's have like nice mainstream films like Mr. Spielberg. And it's like, well, that's unfair. Hollywood always does this. Why not have Spielberg and William Freakin? Do you know what I mean? Why not have yeah. why not have Spielberg making a billion dollars and and William Freakin making a hundred million with something slightly different? Spielberg, you know, Spielberg wanted to direct Cape Fear. He's not. He doesn't only want to do kind of like cozy films, you know. But it was like we used to do that. Now we do this. Fuck you, Billy Freakin. Fuck Coppola. Fuck Hal Ashby. Fuck every kind of gritty seventies film. We're going in this other direction. Actually, now when you look back at the seventies, Sorcerer just belongs in that era of classic seventies gritty films. Um. Definitely recommend watching it. It's, I mean, you, the, just the scene on the bridge, the flooded bridge, when they're like trying to drag it across yeah. the like, Rixie Rope Bridge, you're just like, oh my God, this is just so intense. And the sound design, it's up there with Apocalypse Now for like, they, you know, the director sat with a sound person and said, we really need to crank this up because I want the audience to feel, I want the audience to feel what's going on, you know, rumbling in their gut, you know? Um. And the reason I've grouped it in with The Hunted is that while it's the storyline is completely different, but it, a lot of it is about sort of jungle survival. There's a lot of kind of out in the woods in like a wet forest to people like chasing each other down. And it's kind of, you know, get there are some points where you're talking about rolling around in the mud kind of battle between two people and it's just gritty battle for survival. And it... it in that way, the hunted kind of belongs in in a similar sort of vein as as, as sorcerer. And you've not seen the hunted, have you? Uh, no. So this is two thousand and three. Tommy Lee Jones plays a former kind of trainer for like elite soldiers, where they take special forces soldiers and they train them to be like military assassins. Benicio del Toro plays one of his former assassins. Yeah who's been in the military, seen action, was trained by Tommy Lee Jones to be a, you know, a killer in special unsanctioned missions, the one you know, you know, the one you're not allowed to the one they'll never admit happened, you know. He's got PTSD from his uh time in there. He's living out on his own. He seems to have like snapped for some reason and he's going after people like picking his own missions to kind of go out and kill people that are unsanctioned. Uh and he's just he's basically just murdering people using his military skills 
they employ Tommy Lee Jones to track him down and catch him. And you've got that thing where Tommy Lee Jones feels some sympathy for the guy that he's chasing down and feels his pain and his trauma. It does not is not happy with the way the army has used his people. You as the audience are watching this going, oh, they're just trying to clean house. They, they, they don't want to kind of catch this guy and give him psychiatric care. They want to kill him. You know, they, they want to kill him and like keep quiet what happened to them. So I, I, I'm I, I pre- prepared to venture that that's a um, that's a setup you'd watch, right? Yeah, yeah. That sounds, sounds interesting. And Tommy Lee Jones and Benicio Del Toro are two actors that I would happily watch in that scenario. I don't know about you. Are you a Tommy Lee Jones guy? Are you a Benicio Del Toro guy? Uh, I like the, I like the pair of them. I've still not forgiven Benicio Del Toro for um, The Last Jedi, but I'm willing to for, <laughs> forego that because yeah. it's been good in other things. Uh, what was that? that? That whole middle scene was like, why Why do you do it that way? Anyway, that's not, not his fault. He didn't write yeah. it. Um, but yeah. Um, so... The problem with The Hunted is, it, given that it's William Friedkin, it's a little bit kind of ho-hum. It's like the storyline's been done before, and what I want William Friedkin to do with that is I want him to do the the on-foot trackers, guys running through the jungle or the forest after each other version of Sorcerer. They don't have trucks, but, you know, they're like, it's wet, it's you know, it's wet, it's challenging conditions, it's two people who will stop at nothing, Let, let's see that happen. And it's just not enough of it. And I don't know if it was a case of, this is 2003, and obviously uh, Tommy Lee Jones has been like the, the, that kind of chase people down hero in The Fugitive. And I get the feeling that Tommy Lee Jones, the studio have given him a template that he, he, he can't really break out of. And he just doesn't do enough Billy Friedkin stuff to make this movie stand out, if you see what I mean. Yeah. There's nothing, all the stuff that we watch together in The Saucer where you just think, wow, you know, I'm expecting to see somebody hanging off a cliff or that branch is going to snap or, you know, this guy, this, these people are being pushed to their absolute limits and the audience kind of, as much as you can, feel like they're there. It's just not enough of it. And there's like a car chase. And I know this is harsh, right? But when, when William Friedkin does a car chase there's a standard to be met. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's like watching, I don't know, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo doing keepy uppies and like losing the ball after eight. You think, what the fuck's happened to him? Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Um, It's, it's fine and it's got some good bits in it and Tommy Lee Jones and Benicio Del Toro are always watchable and it's okay. Um, If this was anyone else and it was on, you would watch it once and go, yeah, that was all right. But it's it's not. It feels like like it feels like late on, or you know, thirty years after the after the Exorcist, he's still trying to trying for that commercial success, and it and it's not there anymore. Um, and it's a shame. It's not quite. It's not quite there. But it's 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 okay. But I think I've, I've, the the reason the reason I've done the films like this is I didn't want to talk about. Um, French Connection, uh, Exorcist, Sorcerer, and 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 Cruising. When when William Friedkin was not just one of the best film directors out there, because he still he was still a great director late on, but the output wasn't driving the the, the cultural conversation the way his earlier films were. And I didn't want to have like most of this podcast be oh, and that's not as good as it was before. But it's just interesting to compare. I I, I don't know what I don't know what it is that happens to someone that that, that I, I think. I think what he needed to do is he needed to understand what phase of career he was in and find the right vehicle for that, which I think he did later, and we'll get to those. But, I mean, 
if you compare them to someone like Coppola or compared to other directors like that, why do you think people have this like long period, like like wilderness after that that great period, and they just they just can't do it? What, why do you think directors can't do what they did anymore? It's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's quite easy to pinpoint, you know. For example, you made a reference to Cristiano Ronaldo. Like it's, you can tell why Cristiano Ronaldo wasn't as good at football as he once was because he's now thirty-eight and physically he's not that you know mm. younger player that he once was. But with directors, it's a case of that. That oughtn't to be as much the case, right? You've got that ability now. I suppose it's a case of that. You know, Ridley Scott's obviously still got his ability. We've seen that with films like The Last Duel and House of Gucci recently, which we both enjoyed. Yeah, but. He's also made some really bad choices for the films that he's wanted to make. So I think it's a case of the choosing the film that you want to make and maybe the hand that you're dealt by the studio mm-hmm. or, you know, something like that where, you know, you've you've kind of been left up shit creek. You've not been given the money and you've not been backed by a really big um, production company. So you're going to kind of have to deal with the, the cards you've been dealt. But... Mm-hmm. The ability should always still be there. If if you can make a film as good as The French Connection, The Exorcist, you've got the ability. You know how to make a good film. You know what's going to get bums in seats and people to enjoy the films and keep coming back. I think it's about choosing the right story and kind of adapting to what the audience wants. So, you know, there was a phase there where the audience just wanted Star Wars and Marvel and big blockbusters and those kind of films. And then we've kind of come away from that. And now there's a sort of backlash or like, people aren't enjoying those films as much anymore and they want something different and then you've got films like barbie coming out so it's obviously you've got to kind of adapt to the times and i don't know if you know freed can adapt it to the times it's you've you've either got to adapt to your times or find a niche that says this is where i can do what i do you know yeah i mean it's interesting comparing in my view to john carpenter and there's a a a a, a a year-long project i did called the year of the carpenter where I, i talk about 12 of his films john carpenter has this period from 1976 to some say 1988, but I extended out to 1994 because In the Mouth of Madness is really good, where he does all of his best films in that period. But that's a longer period. That's almost 20 years where pretty much everything John Carpenter does in that given era is like, if it's a John Carpenter film made between those two dates, right? Watch it because it will have something good about it. William Freakin had had this much shorter period of time, and you just think, "Where's the rest of it? Where's the where's the rest of the 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 stuff that he can obviously do?" And he showed it in flashes. He showed it in To Live and Die in L.A. And he showed it, you know, there's bits of The Hunted where it works, and this it's just it it's curious. I, I don't I, I honestly don't I honestly don't know what it is. I wanted to group together another couple of films which kind of show another side to him. Now, what's your what's your experience of oh, this is a weird it's a weird father conver- father son conversation to have? But what's your experience with what with the genre known as or the subgenre known as the erotic thriller, mate? Like Basic Instinct and stuff like that. Fate not really watched many of them. Not not really. I don't really give a shit. Is that, I mean? is that is that is that? I know I ask you to be like the the um the the, the spokesman for all people in your twenties, but do you, th- <laughs> do you think that's a thing for your generation at all? No, I don't think anyone gives a shit. Not not in a bad way, but I don't think that's our type of film. Because mm-hmm. uh, you you have it on TV a little bit. You have these kind of erotic dramas like The Idol, and there's a couple of other things that have been like on Netflix and stuff. So they're still knocking around. 
and that the idol looks very much like it's aimed at a younger audience with the actors that are in it and the setting. But that big erotic thriller film like Base, you know, Basic Instinct. That that's that's not a thing anymore, is it? No, I can't, I couldn't name you a, a film like that that's come out recently. Yeah. So it's weird that I preface that for the next film I'm talking about, which is Cruising, because Cruising was never talked about in those terms when it came out. Cruising was about a, a, a cop going undercover um, in gay clubs in the late 70s to, and all the film came out in 1980, it does feel like a late 70s film. And again, it's based on real events, right? And the reason, I'll explain in a minute why I think it's, it counts as an erotic thriller. Um, but at the time, it was all about, oh, this is lifting the lid on the gay scene in the 70s. And is this film homophobic because it shows gay people, you know, engaging in acts which your your average kind of person would be shocked to watch and blah, blah, blah. It was a hugely controversial film when it came out. Um, it's, again, based on real events. I, this guy's a bit blinking, you miss it. But, you know, in, in Sorcerer, yeah, yeah. Roy Scheider is the driver for some like organized crime robbers and they rob the wrong guy and he has to make his escape. Yeah. Do you remember the guy with the mustache who helps him escape because he owes him a favor? Yes. And then at the end, you see him come back. Sorry, spoiler alert, folks. You see him come back and he's hunting Roy Scheider down at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that guy's called Randy Jurgensen and he's an actor who was in several. Uh, uh, William Friedkin films and he has a part in Cruising before he was an actor he was a cop right and although Cruising is based on other events or, and then then and then fictionalises them even further up to the 70s it's partly inspired by events that Randy Jurgens took part in as a young policeman in the 60s right where he went undercover in gay clubs to try and catch a serial killer who was killing gay people and what's really interesting is that in that in that experience, because he was hanging around, he had to act like he was gay, he had to hang out with gay people, he had to go to gay clubs, and without kind of engaging actually in, in, in the lifestyle, because he, he's not gay himself, he had to kind of be very much exposed to that whole gay scene. And the whole point was now that because because the gay scene was had to be done in secret and he had to go to a club that was a gay club, I think that intensifies everything that's going on there. It's yeah. like your average gay person who just wants to we're going to have a cup of tea and then maybe we'll go out. Do you know what I mean? That's not the gay scene back then. The gay scene was go to a club and it's all, you know, it's all magnified, right? And that's sure there's plenty of that now. But he had to be exposed to all of that. And he, he actually found that it made him question his own sexuality. He didn't come out as gay or anything, but he certainly found himself going, wow, I'm not as... I'm not as put off by this as I thought I was going to be. Do you know what I mean? And William Friedkin yeah. found that really fascinating. So he makes a film called Cruising, where in the late 70s, the... A serial killer is preying on and killing gay men who are all frequenting uh, S&M clubs. So it's not even just your average gay club where you go for a drink and you know everyone else in there is gay. So if you strike up a conversation with someone, they're not going to be offended if you ask them out. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. not that. It's like full on kind of hard S&M kind of scene in New York in the late 70s where everything was really full on anyway. And Al Pacino plays the undercover cop who goes and has to pose as a gay man who's into that scene to hang out with the people there because they think that the killer is one of the people who frequents the clubs. So he's basically, they're turning him into bait, right? He's got to hang out in the clubs and see if he gets approached by the killer because he's a similar sort of height and build and look to the people who are getting murdered because serial killers always have a type. And through the course of this, Al Pacino has to wear the clothes 
attend you know attend the parties learn how you know what wearing a handkerchief on one side of your pocket signifies um act like he's into it if a guy chats him up because he might need to take him back to a room where the the undercover police will pounce on him and he finds himself being strangely compelled by what he's watching he is to all intents and purposes straight um he has a girlfriend played by karen allen and the film leaves it very open-ended whether he's being turned on by the heavy S&M stuff, you know, the handcuffs and the leather and all that sort of thing, or whether he is actually maybe being slightly turned on by the, the gay scene. Um, and in the course of it, he gets really, really deep into it, and the killer is preying on them, and, you know, will he catch the killer? You know, what, you know, who is the killer and everything else? Hugely controversial at the time because it portrayed homosexuality and it meant that those people who were homophobic thought the whole thing was like morally repugnant. But also a lot of gay people objected to it because they argued that showing this full-on gay scene is going to confirm all the prejudices of your average homophobic kind of mainstream American and they'll hate us even more than they already do kind of thing. Right. And William Friedkin being William Friedkin, basically what he did was he took his camera crew and just went and filmed in those clubs pulled no punches in fact there's like a version of this film with like well it doesn't exist but there was 40 minutes of footage in the original film which has got like loads of gay men like just humping each other into the middle of next week in the background because these clubs were really full-on and freaking's like well if that's happening it's in the movie until the studio just just <laughs> you can't do that you can't do that otherwise you'll only be able to show this in 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 the porno theaters right um but even with what is in the film it's really really full-on because he just he didn't he didn't go to those clubs, have a look at what they were like, and then recreate that in a studio. He just filmed in the clubs. And he asked the studio's permission. For example, the, he had to ask the club's permission to film there, and he filmed in there as much as he could until eventually they said, there's too much heat around you, Billy. We're not letting you in anymore. But one of these clubs, they had a night where you could only get in if you were wearing a jockstrap. Right. And, and nothing else. So William Freakin and his camera crew had to walk in wearing nothing but jock straps. And Billy Freakin's like, okay, if that's what I have to do to shoot the film, that's what he's doing. And he said he was absolutely gutted because nobody chatted him up, which means he's obviously not good looking enough, right? Um, and Even in a situation like that where everyone's dying to Yeah, that's other. right. You know, there was no one who was having a terrible night and absolutely getting nowhere. Even go, do you know what I mean? No one's desperate enough to chat Billy Freakin up. You know, oh, no, no, no one is going through a dry enough spell to turn to turn to him. Um, so the man's just died for fuck's sake. Yeah, and you're fucking laying into him. Yeah, and it's like <laughs> I'm a re- that's the story he recounted. He was very good at telling stories against himself. But when you watch that film, right at the time, it was oh, this is really homophobic. Um, and William Freakin absolutely denied there was any homophobia to it. He was just portraying that that's what it's like. I'm just pointing the camera. That's what it's like. I'm making no comment. I'm not saying there's anything bad about this. Um, and, you know, Al Pacino, there's a lot of discussion why Al Pacino is really going places that he never would have gone. William Freakin actually wanted Richard Gere to play the main character because he, he just, he felt that he had a, a, a more suit to it. He wasn't sure whether Al Pacino was the guy, but the studio wanted a star, so they got Al Pacino. Um, it's a very, very different Al Pacino performance. It's not like anything you've ever seen. Um, and there's a lot of discussion about well, if, if Al Pacino is kind of secretly into all of this and, you know, it's it's all, it's all left a little bit kind of open-ended at the end, well, is he the killer? Is he a killer? Is he violent? Is he gay? And there was all of this stuff about going, oh, this is all just portraying homosexuals as like, you know, 
weird perverts, basically, is what it, what it was accused of at the time. And it wasn't helped by the fact that there were some homophobic attacks by people who cited having seen cruising as their motivation. Um, but if you take all of that away now, you watch it now and you go, I don't see the homophobia. There's a scene at the beginning, right, where Al Pacino is being uh, 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 sort of briefed by Paul Savino, who plays his boss in the movie. You know, the big the, the, the boss in Goodfellas, that Paul Savino. Yeah, yeah. And basically, and he says, right, we need to go undercover in gay clubs. And it's not regular gay clubs, it's just gay guys having a drink. It's the hard S&M stuff, which is a world unto itself. It's not mainstream gay, it's right out on the fringes. And to a modern audience, you just go, okay. You take that at face value that that's what it is. And throughout the rest yeah. of the film, you're watching S&M like scene. You're not going, oh, this is what all gays are like. You just what you, you you take it on at face value what the film is telling you, and also you're watching it now and you're just going, yeah, the guy's got a moustache and a, a fucking motorcycle helmet, and he's kind of spanking another bloke on the ass. If that's what they're into, who cares? The modern audience just goes, yeah, sure, if that's what they're into. The problem is not that they're doing that. The problem is that there is a psycho attacking those people, and the psycho psychology is partly linked by how much like antipathy there is to homosexuality. So when you're watching it in the 21st century, you go, yeah, and that's the problem, isn't it? He probably wouldn't be as much of a psycho if he hadn't been kind of, you know, punished and abused by his parents for being gay, right? And and Al Pacino finds the whole thing strangely compelling. So what part of this is homophobic? Do you know what I mean? The main character is watching it and think kind of likes it. The cops are kind of saying, we've got to stop the guy who's killing these people and acknowledge that this isn't what all gay people are like. Um there are bits at the end where you just think, well, are they actually saying that all gay people are killers? Because there's, you know, there's a question if there been more than one killer. But I think that a lot more of that was, it was, you know, 70s, like their open-ended endings. And it was an element of violence is everywhere. But, you know, the, the police, are, a lot of the police are portrayed as corrupt and hypocritical in their dislike of, of gay sex workers. You know, William Freakin just points the camera and shows what these people were like. It doesn't look... Um, homophobic at all now in my humble opinion maybe some people would say it does but what it does look like is it looks like an erotic thriller because the cop is investigating killings but finds himself strangely drawn to and turned on by the scene that he's undercovering it's classic erotic thriller territory just can I can I give you like my third party perspective or maybe my two shots on maybe the kind of backlash this so I, I agree with the point that you mentioned that you know some members of the gay community said that this is just going to make everyone kind of repulsed, or is that the kind of point you made, or like the kind of yeah, the, the, confirm everyone? And they were kind, they were they, they kind of predicted predicted correctly because a lot of people went, "Wow, look at all this like weird gay shit," and so, the, the gay activists at the time kind of were afraid. So look, don't don't point too much of a camera at us right now because we just made some progress, and this is going to make us targets to, to some people. Twenty years, kind yeah, of thing. this is so, going to make us targets to some people. So I think. It doesn't sound that there's any homophobia in it, it, but what I think it would do is invoke a kind of. I think the best way I can describe it is like you know one of those Chinese finger traps, mm-hmm. and the more you kind of push your fingers, like you pull your fingers apart, the harder it is to kind of break yeah, it. The, I think the, that yeah, the more that, the more caught up you get. Yeah, the people that held those kind of homophobic views and you know disdain for gay people have seen that film and pulled further away and rather than opening mm-hmm. themselves up to thinking that being gay is sorry being gay is okay yeah so i think it's i can understand i don't think it sounds homophobic i think it just sounded like it was maybe not the right time and like you say if that film was released today 
nobody would give a shit. But I think mm-hmm. back then, when we still kind of had that hesitancy to accept gay people and move forward, I think that's where you would struggle to get a film like that across the line in a way that people wouldn't be disgusted by it regardless. Now, yeah. it sounds like, I've not seen it, but it sounds like he's just saying, look, this is this is what's going on. These gay people are having a fucking great time in these clubs. And this is the true story of a, a cop that went through this to investigate something that was going on in these gay clubs. That That mm-hmm. is it. Now, regardless if he said that without a single suggestion of a homophobic slur or criticism of the gay community, I think just making that film at the time doesn't, isn't ever going to bode well. Whereas if you made it now, if someone didn't want to see that film, they wouldn't go see that film. Whereas there'd be a lot of people that would go, oh, well, I've watched some other stuff that, you know, um, followed members of the game community. Like, for example, It's a Sin. I don't know if you saw the TV show. Yeah. So there's more kind of media like that now. So I don't, I don't think people would give a shit. And I don't think there would ever be a question of it being homophobic. Mm-hmm. I just, I think, it's weird that it was called homophobic. That's why I don't, I think the argument would be, if the argument was, why are you making this film? It's going to, make the homophobic people even more homophobic, then I would understand it. But it doesn't sound like William Friedkin at all was being homophobic. He went into the fucking clubs wearing a jock strap for fuck's sake to yeah. try and display the thing that he wanted mm-hmm. to display. So I don't know. I've gone on a bit of a... No, no, no. I think you're absolutely spot on. And I think that's why in 1993, when they made a big mainstream AIDS drama, sorry, a big mainstream AIDS drama, whose, 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 cho- whose mission was to get people to be more understanding both of gay people and of HIV. They chose Tom Hanks as the the main gay character and made Washington. It, and you know and it was all some of the most kind of reliable, dependable, relatable, you know, popular people you'd say well actually if Tom, you know, that that could be the guy next door, that could be me and it's all very safe and tame. And 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 Tom Cruise's sorry Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks's sort of portrayal of a gay man seems incredibly tame now. And you don't make Philadelphia now exactly as you say, you make it a sin, yeah? Un- unapologetically flawed gay characters. Some of them get up to all sorts. Some of them are much more kind of, do you know what I mean? It's like the full, it's a sin is like the full spectrum of like gay people, you know? And Philadelphia was, we need this to be as kind of tame, not, t- not, we need this in the same reason that, in the same way that in 1968, guess he's coming to dinner, the 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 black guy that the, the girl brings home is Sidney Poitier, right? Because right. it's not your basic average black guy, it's the fucking most beautiful, kind of elegant, dignified black guy who's ever walked the earth, right? And if Guess Who's Coming to Dinner happened now, the movie's five minutes long, the daughter brings home Sidney Poitier, and the mum says, if you don't marry him, I will. Don't fuck this up, right? Um, But back then, you needed to kind of say, you needed to kind of stack the deck in favour of the right, uh, uh, the right outcome, if you see what I mean? Yeah. And you're right. And the... I suppose the criticism you might level is that William Freakin wasn't gay and he could go home to his life after he made cruising and he wasn't going to get beaten up walking down the street with his partner. Do you know what I mean? So he could be accused of throwing people under the bus a little bit because he just, he was so confrontational with the movie that he made. But yeah, I, I, I totally get your, I totally get your point about why it would, the timing wasn't ideal back then, but watching it now, as a as a as a as a as an analysis of the time, I think it comes across really well. I think it's aged much better than a lot of films that came out in nineteen eighty. Put it that way. Yeah, but the reason I've grouped it with Jade is because I think it plays out like an erotic thriller, because that main bit, 
And, and again, if you made it now, it would probably be a gay director, right? The central character would probably be at least bi, yeah? Or maybe find out that he's bi or find out that he's gay in the course of making the film. He'd probably have a relationship with one of the people that he's in the film with, right? And But that central plot line is really powerful. It's like, wow, this guy, this, guy, this character finds out they're a lot more into that stuff than they ever thought they would be. That is interesting, yeah? Yeah. And so the reason I've paired it with Jade is that Jade came out in 1995 at the, at, towards the end of the erotic thriller kind of phase. It was like the bubble was just about to burst. Have you heard of a guy called Joe Esterhaz? No. Right, he wrote Basic Instinct. Okay. And he wrote Sliver, which was like the follow-up to that. So let's get Sharon Stone's kit off again. They did that in Sliver. Um, Showgirls was him. He was one of these people. He was like a celebrity... Um, screenwriter started out with a couple of things in the eighties. I think I think one of his was the Jagged Edge, with Jeff Bridges and I think Glenn Close. And the whole thing is it's an erotic thriller. It's an absolute classic kind of plotline trope for him is that someone's trying to investigate uh, um, a murder. They are uh, they meet someone or, or they they talk to the suspect. They get involved with they get attracted to and involved with the person. And they are now compromised because they're so obsessed with and into the person that they're supposed to be investigating. And are they the killer? Are they not the killer? Classic erotic thriller material, right? And then Joe Esterhaus took this to kind of brand new levels with Basic Instinct, where it was like Paul Verhoeven was so, and still is, not afraid to make a trashy film, right? A trashy, exploitative film. And he makes it really, you know, really watchable. Like Robocop and Total Recall, it's like, you know, even the Total Recall is like a bit more sort of, you know, sci-fi with ideas. It's like, yeah, people are going to get their fucking heads blown off in this or we're going to see some like nudity and 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 stuff that people are going to object to and you're going to have fun. Do you know what I mean? And it was yeah. all that. There was a lot of cocaine knocking around at the time as well. And at this point, Joe Esterhaz was... Um, it was at a stage where there was a lot of money being thrown at Joe Esterhaz's ideas for films and people were turning out to see them, but there's also that you could feel it starting to turn. Do you know what I mean? It was sort of an element of really, are we still making this shit kind of thing? And Jade was one of those ones where they paid him like $2 million for an idea he wrote down on the back of a napkin before he'd even written it up as a script kind of thing. And Jade is about, uh, again, it's a, it's a district attorney investigating um, a murder, uh, which turns out to be more than one murder. And the, uh, the it involves political corruption. It involves blackmail of powerful figures. There are compromising photographs of people with this mysterious woman called Jade. And Jade may or may, or may not be the killer and may or may not be his ex, who he's still clearly in love with and is married to his best friend now who seems on the surface to be actually quite a respectable academic, but might be living this double life uh, as like a, uh, like this character called Jade who's having sex with powerful men and is into all kinds of weird shit. And he's investigating the, the, the crime while at the same time clearly isn't over this woman and is still really into her. So it's classic erotic thriller material. Now, William Friedkin was really unlucky that the bubble was about to burst. Joe Esterhaz's other film, Showgirls, came out shortly before this one. And was an absolute disaster. Have you heard about the fuss and controversy around Showgirls? Uh, no. Basically, it was another one where Showgirls is about a stripper who goes to Vegas to be a stripper. And in the course of being a stripper, she takes her clothes off and has sex with a lot of people. And really, they just go... And it's just so full on. It's like Joe uh, Paul Verhoeven, who did um, Basic Instinct. And 
everyone just went, no, you've gone too far now. This Not only is this too much, it's the kind of, like, these are these people having sex or are they trying to beat each other up? It's so over the top. It's nonsensical. Um, they basically sort of went, it's an erotic thriller. It's a Joe Estahar script. It's Paul Verhoeven directing. Let's just throw everything at the screen. It's bound to do well. And people had had enough. They said, done. And then it just so happens that shortly after that fuss and this whole kind of thing has come crashing down, here comes Billy Freakin with, um, would you like to watch my erotic thriller based on a Joe Estahar script? Uh, <laughs> he's very, very unlucky with his timing. Interestingly, he's he rewrote the script, and he sh- and I'm I'm glad he did because he 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 tries to make it's a lot it's a lot better than its reputation, if you ask me, because it's a huge flop. It cost fifty million dollars to make, which is a lot of money in in 1995. It made nine million dollars. It's an absolute disaster, right? But when you watch it, you don't go, oh wow, this is full of all the ridiculous success and exploitation and stupidity. All, all the things that made people go off this kind of film. It's actually an attempt to be a lot more intelligent than that. So it's not as bad as its reputation. The problem is it's not enough of anything else either. Because, you know, you're talking about, earlier you were talking about the hand that you're dealt by the studio. They still wanted a Joe Estahar's erotic thriller, so it had to have all that stuff in it. And he's trying to do something that's going to stand up a little bit, bit better than that, but he can't break away enough from that format. So you've still got... Like um, it's Linda Fiorentino, who was very much a sort of a, 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 a very much a thing, big thing in the nineties, playing this alluring character. You've got David Caruso, you know the ginger guy from CSI Miami. Yes, trying to make it as a as a film actor, which he never quite did. And there's not enough on him. There's not enough of him getting kind of obsessed or too embroiled with her. He just follows the case a little bit. It's ninety five minutes long, and I, I still feel like it's got twenty minutes cut out. There's an example is there's a scene where it's actually quite a good car chase, right? Um, it's certainly it's not as good as his best ones, but it stands up, right? It's it's quite cool going through um, like San Francisco the way it does. Um, but at the end of the car chase, he gets shunted over the side of the harbor, and his car goes into the water. And the next thing you see is him just coming up through the through the through the water. Okay. There's no him at the bottom of the water trying to like batter his door down or try and get out. Can he smash the glass? Is he going to die? He just comes up, he just bobs up and goes, oh shit, the guy got away. And you just think, wow, Billy Friedkin didn't show you, he didn't show you the scene you expect him to see, the intensity that is he going to die? And it's, look, it's actually all right, but it's just not enough of anything. It's what, what could have happened was that if Billy Freakin had gone, well, I'm going to do with this what I did with cruising. I'm just going to rub your nose in it. I'm not going to do it like Paul Verhoeven trashy style. I'm not going to have Sharon Stone uncrossing her legs in the interrogation room. But I, what I am going to do is I'm really going to take you right up to your limits and take these characters right up to their limits and see if you can hack it. If, he, if he'd actually just said, fuck it, I'm going to do it my way, I think it would have been a better movie. But I think he was trying to play by the rules. He didn't want to colour too far out of the lines that the studio had given him. So it ends up being not enough of anything and it's a massive disaster. It's it's I tell you what though, it's 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 actually not that bad. It's better than better than you'd think. It's just it doesn't give you enough of anything. It doesn't give you enough of like the twists and turns of the the will they won't they or the or the who who done it. It doesn't give you enough of the erotic part of the erotic thriller. But it's got some it's got some bits in it that are all right again, but it, but it is, it is an example of he's a little bit unlucky with his timing and a little bit unlucky that didn't just say, actually, fuck you. I'm really going to go for it and do a Billy Friedkin film. But it's interesting that he got caught up in that. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm not and, sure. If, and, I'm not sure I've sold it to you as a film that you're going to go out and watch. Probably not. But what you're describing more is a director that seems to have just kind of been. He just seemed to have kind of stinking luck. Mm-hmm. You know, like he's obviously had great success, and you know, he can. I hope he looked back on his career before he passed with, you know, pride at the success that he did have. Mm-hmm. But it did feel like when he wanted to release a film that could have been interesting, another film came out at the time that kind of spoiled it. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it sounds like he just didn't get the timing. Oh, he didn't always get the timing that he needed. Not necessarily that he that he picked it badly. It was just if he if he does that film in nineteen ninety three, he might just have got a bit more leeway to really go for it. Um, although I think he'd have been a little bit still been a little bit restricted by the genre. He might have made money, and it might have been like, oh, well done, Billy. What else do you want to do now? Rather than his name being attached to one of the biggest flops of the year. So you're right about stinking luck and stinking timing. And if he'd made that movie when he was on top, he would have probably got more traction to do it his way. So he was just, again, it was he was really in a no-win situation because Showgirls came out and flopped and they looked and went, what the fuck's this? Another Joe Estar's erotic thriller. No, thank you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's not as good as the repetition. He's also quite unlucky that he was saddled with David Caruso who decided that he was too good for TV he was in a hit show called NYPD Blue before CSI, and he walked out because he'd become a really big star on the telly. And went, oh, I'm I'm going to be a film star now, and it's like, well, not with that performance, mate. He's just he's too much. He's just too blank in the movie, which is a, it's a it's a shame because in Basic Instinct, right, the whole thing's really trashy. But the scent and and he's he's got a good a good actress in Linda Fiorentino, but Sharon Stone is just looking at the camera, winking at the audience, going, I'm. She, Sharon Stone's not just manipulating Michael Douglas in Basic Instinct. She's manipulating the audience. You know what I mean? She's just relishing her role, right? And Michael yeah. Douglas is so good at playing those kind of morally compromised characters who you'll still watch. And David Caruso just doesn't, doesn't stand up to that. We're closing in a little bit now. I just want to briefly mention a film that he called Rules of Engagement because it was one of his sort of most sort of better commercially performing films of that time. He did it in two thousand, and it's a it's a it's mostly a courtroom drama with some action scenes at the start. It's about an embassy getting kind of overrun, and then a uh, the military who were trying to protect it. That Samuel Jackson plays the guy who's being put on trial for the way he conducted himself during the embassy siege, kind of thing. And Tommy Lee Jones is his old friend sent to um, defend him in the, in the trial. And it's in 2000 that there's still, you know, Samuel L. Jackson is still getting quite big star parts and it's definitely a case of let's make this a big star vehicle for Samuel L. Jackson. And Tommy Lee Jones is kind of adding sort of good support. Um, it's okay. It's got, it's got some good stuff. It's, it's, it's not bad. It's the sort of thing that if it's ever on telly, give it a watch. It's okay. It's quite good. Um, what it needed to be is it needed to come out about three years earlier and it needed to be like a John Grisham novel. Okay. Because in the 90s, what they did was Alan J. Pakula, who was behind all the President's Men and uh, uh, the Warren Beatty conspiracy film, The Parallax View, that we went to see. And he does the Pelican Brief with uh, Denzel Washington and Julia Roberts and uh, John Grisham, you know, novels become a big thing. Tom Cruise does The Firm and like Francis Coppola does one, Robert Altman does one. Like, and... Getting sort of quite big name directors like veteran directors, you know, uh, Sidney Pollack does one. So they're, they're getting kind of established directors who, who've you know had big hits in the past to come and do these kind of Grisham novels and lend them some class. 
And if it had been one of those, right, I reckon, I reckon Billy Freakin would have done really well with it. Because he does a good job with this story, but it's not just enough. Not It's not enough to write home about in the overall story. But if it was like, if it was a big John Grisham novel, if it was part of that big kind of, you know, money-making machine, I think it would have, um, I think it would have hit a bit better. It's fine. It's absolutely fine. I think he um, he just needed to, He again, he's a little bit unlucky with the timing and the, and the property, but he still showed that he was a, a decent director, you know? Yeah. Um, but I would, I would I'd recommend that. What, what, what do you like on the whole courtroom drama thing? Do you like that? Do you like a courtroom drama? Yes and no. I do find them quite slow, but if they're done well and there's a couple of twists and turns and you don't see them coming, which is hard to do nowadays because we've seen every twist. Mm-hmm. We've seen more twists than a Chubby Checker song. But, um, yeah, I, I don't mind them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, John John Grisham. Have you have you seen much John Grisham? The name rings a bell, and I don't know why. Uh, the Firm, uh, A Time to Kill with Matthew McConaughey. The Pelican Brief with Julia Roberts. Um, what else did they it's do? Time to Kill, the one with Matthew McConaughey and Samuel L. Jackson. Yes, we've seen that one. Yeah, yeah. Quite often, most of the film doesn't take place in a courtroom in a John Grisham story because I think he knows that just sitting there talking in a courtroom. That needs to be kind of the cli- that can be the climax, but it's actually the twists and turns that are that are bit that, that make people keep watching. So he, it's it's very much over. It's it was very much a nineties thing in in the firm. That's supposedly a legal thriller, but Tom Cruise never sees the inside of a courtroom. He's all it's all at, he's all out and about being chased. Um, but yeah, that's that. What, the reason I'm linking it to that is that if. if 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 Friedkin had been attached to something like that at the right time in the nineties, I think that could have given him a kickstart. But it, but it didn't quite. It, that film did okay because it's got Sam Jackson in it. Um, but closing here with um, his last two films, which is what one of the one of the listeners called the late career flourish. And I don't think you've seen Bug or Killer Joe, have you? No, but I know Killer Joe he had Matthew McConaughey in it, and they're, they're redoing it as a series, which uh, William Friedkin was attached to. Yeah, I'm not sure how it would. Maybe it'll play out as a series. Yeah, I suppose you could play it out as a series of the killer. You see the Killer Joe's various um, exploits. I suppose you could do rather yeah. than because this is just one one story. You could have more stories of Killer Joe. If you watch the film, you'll see why I say that. He's a he's a cop who kills people for money, and he's a psychopath. So in in a series, you could have him involved in multiple storylines. Um, Bug is two thousand and six. It's Ashley Judd and um, uh, Michael Shannon who we discuss in Take Shelter in the Features uh, this month. Um, uh, uh, are you a Michael Shannon guy? I like Michael Shannon. I find him quite funny. So in in Bug, Ashley Judd is a, a, a woman who's had some t- tough times, tough relationships. She's living on her own. She's a bit of a loner. Uh, and she meets Michael Shannon, who is a traumatized war veteran. And over the course of the story, it's an adaptation of a play. So there's a lot more dialogue and there's only like one set. Uh, but over the course of the story, he either stops taking his meds or his trauma gets the better of him. And he starts to, his hallucinations take over or he's hallucinating that there are bugs everywhere. And for whatever reason, you can watch the film and I think it's open to interpretation. You can speculate for yourself. Ashley Judd you know, is in love with him, but also she starts to 
uh, maybe she's got trauma of her own, maybe it's some sort of sympathetic thing, but she starts to get overtaken by his hallucinations as well. And by the end of it, you've got two people who genuinely believe that there are bugs infesting everywhere and you have to cover your house in tinfoil because some of these bugs are like, you know, been sent by the government. It's it's an exploration of, you know, paranoid schizophrenia, really. And Michael J. Shannon does a really lovely job of being, he's clearly not a bad person, but he is also terribly mentally ill and these people are just left to their own devices they just completely lose it okay and it is really intense stuff and actually this is what i think uh william Friedkin should have started doing this 10 years earlier because he basically says not got a lot of money but with his name he can get some good actors like michael shannon and ashley judd not michael j shannon (laughs) who's michael j shannon you said Michael J. Shannon because I thought you were going to say Michael J. Fox. I think I've just merged the two characters. Imagine, Michael, got... imagine Michael Shannon is like Teen Wolf. Um, <laughs> I was just like, am I losing my fucking mind? <laughs> no, no, it's always me. It's always me doing that shit. I'm turning into my mother. So Michael Shannon and Ashley Judd are good actors, but he can get decent names. It's it's based on a stage play by Tracy Letts, and he just goes for it. He, he he films the hallucinations. He films... There are some amazing scenes with the actors kind of basically breaking down. Um, some really, it, you know, intense, quite gory stuff that, that can, be, can be hard to stomach, but beautifully, beautifully, beautifully done. And he's clearly still got it because with the right film, it's a relatively low budget and it's not going to be like a massive movie. So he just goes, right, I'm making the best fucking movie I can. Fuck you, I'm Billy Friedkin. And fuck you, I'm Billy Friedkin. It's the best kind of Billy Friedkin, you know? And this film's fucking brilliant. It's really, really, really intense um, and gripping and everything it should be. And if he just decided to go independent like 10 years earlier than he did, I reckon he could have made four or five movies like this and it would be fantastic to watch. Um, And Killer Joe is similar. It's also based on a stage play by the same guy, Tracy Letts. It's got a few more sets and settings than bug which is really just focused on the home of two people who are losing their minds but in killer joe it's this kind of just dipshit like trailer park trailer trash family it's a young guy he's an arsehole who owes money and he's got a kind of a weird relationship with his kind of like slightly dippy sister um and killer joe is um the guy that this the main character this low-level drug dealer hires to um uh, to kill his mother so that he can collect on her life insurance and pay the drug debt that he owes. And you see him being beaten up by the people he owes money to. You see Killer Joe, like Matthew McConaughey, in terrifying form, intimidating people. Um, because they don't have enough money up front, they basically give him uh, his sister uh, as payment for um, for carrying it out. So he's basically like sexually exploiting his own sister and, you know, get, providing it to Matthew McConaughey for her pleasure. Um, uh, Gina Gershon's in it. She's really good. Uh, and it's full of twists and turns. It's proper like, proper like noirish and scary. Thomas Hayden Church is in it, who was Sandman in Spider-Man 3, but also in like some other really good stuff. Juno Temple. the Jungle. Yeah, yeah. Juno Temple plays the, the young sister. She's very good as well. And it just plays out to this really kind of gothic, like maybe some people call it over the top, but again, violent, terrifying sort of uh, climax. And again, really, really good. And just more like, yeah, more of this, please, you know. And it's funny how he found this terrific niche because, you know, Matthew McConaughey was at at this time, it's 2011, he's trying to get away from rom-coms. So he throws himself into this. 
He gets good good actors who aren't necessarily huge commercial names, like Thomas Hayden Church and Gina Gershon. But he just says his name is enough to get a good cast together and enough money to make an interesting film. And this is like this is his niche. And I, I, it's really nice actually that he found he found an outlet to still be an amazing film director with these last couple of films. Because the pre- previous to this, it's like he's he's trying to recapture something that can't be recaptured. And in this, he just goes. This is the, the movie I can make, and he just—I can't imagine anyone doing either of these films better than he did them. Really, really I totally recommend you watching *Bug and Killer Joe* because they're fucking great, hard and dark, but really great. I'll put them on the list. On your list, but I mean, how, how would you sum up William Friedkin? I mean, but, I mean, it's still very much—he was big in the '70s, and then he wasn't, and he, he was only ever as good again in *Fits and Starts*, is my view. But what what what, what comes to mind when you think of William Friedkin? Um. Very talented, made some very iconic and brilliant films. Wasn't scared to try something completely different, wasn't pinned down to one genre. Made some genre-defining films, but often some of these films that you wanted to make were hampered with bad luck, bad studio backing, that kind of thing. Bad, you know, bad press that wasn't necessarily wanted, mm-hmm. uh, warranted, sorry. So I think he should be remembered as a legendary director, of course, first and foremost. But if you start analysing your career, you think, oh, I wonder if he'd been given a bit more money for that or if mm-hmm. he didn't have a studio being a fanny or if he was just able to go out and make his film without any you know, interference. You would have thought, wow, he made you know, 20 amazing films. He made, he made some brilliant films, but he would be looked on as like, you know, because when I think it, when you think of the best directors ever, does he get mentioned in that conversation for you? Um, maybe, maybe he doesn't. Yeah, I think it's really hard to compare body of work when he's done like you know he had that kind of very game of two halves of you know of a film career at his, at his best. His best stuff is as good as anybody's is the way I'd put it. I mean, he's made what's he done? He's done like French Connection, The Exorcist, Sorcerer, Cruising. To Live and Die in L.A., Bug, Killer Joe. That's like eight films, which are really, really good and really stand comparison. And the only reason you kind of... Uh, he's done a number of films which are nowhere near as good as that. And he had that long period where he wasn't... Like 20 years where he just wasn't doing anything as good as he was capable of. Um, but looking back now, to pick out pick out his, his best films, there's a good number of really, 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 really good films to watch there. So I don't, I, I don't think he... He he made no apologies for who he was in the films that he made. Um, you know, he he thought he did a good job of Jade, and people always say that. You know, they always think they you know that you know that they see the film that they were trying to do or the vision they were trying to recreate. Um, but I think anyone would be proud to have those eight films on their CV, regardless of anything else. Overall, though, I mean, I think he'll be remembered for how he shaped the nineteen seventies, and because the nineteen seventies is seen as this really kind of like a very very important decade in film i think he's always going to be remembered most for that right yeah and you know that it's no accident that in his obituary it was william friedkin director of french connection the exorcist because those were his biggest hits what a guy what a guy well thank you very much for this um this big conversation i'm hoping that there are th- at least three or four films that the people listening haven't I know some of some of our listeners have like seen all of Freakin's films, but I think some of the people listening might not have seen all of the films we've mentioned. And I think there are some there's a, there's a bit of a treasure trove there if you only know him for like his two biggest movies. So hopefully you know you're gonna you, you'll have picked out some something good to watch, 
And we really hope you've enjoyed this retrospective on William Friedkin. That's all for this month's episode of Double Reel. Thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The podcast was edited in Audacity and hosted on Podbean. We're grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Outside of Double Reel, you can find us both hosting a non-film related podcast, The Adamson's Versus. Our most recent episode, The Adamson's Versus AI, is out now. So this is me, James Adamson, signing off and... This is me, James Adamson, signing off. Our next episode will be our regular episode 42 next month. Keep an eye out for any special episodes we decide to do in future. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and tell your friends. Until next time, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media. And if you're the son of the US president, make sure you're buying those guns legally. (laughs) 